Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. For more than five years, Deep State Radio has been on top of all of the key foreign policy and national security stories impacting the world. We're grateful to our members who make all of this possible and hope that you will consider supporting our work by becoming a member. Members get access to exclusive bonus content, the opportunity to participate in discussions via our member Slack community, our weekly member briefings, and our DSR Daily Brief newsletter delivered to your inbox each evening. Members also receive all of our content via private member feed that you can add to your favorite podcast app. And we're not stopping there, as we'll soon be announcing additional programming and content partnerships to make membership an absolute must-have. To become a member, visit bit.ly slash dsrmember and enter code MAY2022 at checkout to gain access to all of our exclusive benefits for just $5 per month. Thank you for your support. Nine. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to the latest edition of the podcast. I'm David Rothkopf, your host, coming to you from beautiful, spring-like Greenwich Village in New York City. I am joined today by our core crew, including in Bucolic, Alexandria, Virginia, Rosa Brooks of Georgetown Law School. How are you today, Rosa? Hiya, David. Is it Bucolic? It's pastoral. There are cows and sheep and things right out my door. Yeah, no, I can I can well imagine. And that is the normal form of life for Edward Luce at Fabulous Luce Estates, also in Washington, D.C. How are you doing today, Ed? Splendidly, thank you. Um, and of course, of the Financial Times and of the New York Times, we have in Washington, David Sanger. How are you doing today, David? I'm actually in the New York Times Bureau. This is like return to office, Dick. Wow. <laughs> I realize, I I realize I that's an alien. That. I realize it's an alien concept to you. But uh, <laughs> David, do you have to work with other humans? There are other humans sitting around me oh, now. Oh, good Lord. Yeah. Yeah, I, it took me a while to recognize some of them. What's, uh, what's it like? <laughs> I, it's, 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 it's strange, Ed. There are other people that come. They have this thing called meetings. And rather than turn on your computer, you go and you sit in a room and you like talk to people. If that's upsetting to you, what you can do is you can you can cut out, out rectangles from construction paper and just ask everyone to hold them in front of their faces. You know what we do instead? We actually just project empty Zoom things on the wall just so we all feel at home. How do you mute them? Oh, the usual way. You just stuff stuff in their mouth, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Something really chewy. Guys are not grown-ups. Nonetheless, <laughs> we are going to now make an effort to offer some perspectives on what is going on in the world. I want to start with Ed, because Ed participated in something that he can describe for us called the Financial Times Festival. I mean, if you can imagine 
anything more festive than the Financial Times Festival. I can hardly myself. But, and during it, he interviewed both Bill Burns, the head of the CIA, and Henry Kissinger. So maybe you could start there and we can pick up from that, Ed. The Financial Times, it's the weekend FT festival, which is slightly more festive than the weekday <laughs> FT. And it's normally held in North London in Hampstead. Wait a minute, David and Rosa, just to level set here, do you ever remember being invited to the weekend festival in Hampstead? Because my invitation got lost in the mail. I got invited to the Washington one, but nothing good, right? I'm never invited to anything. I just sit here and cry by myself in Alexandria. Okay, David? <laughs> I can't even talk. I'm thinking of poor, broken Rosa, but no. Well, I thought I was bearing up pretty well in light of that. But it's true, Ed. Where where were our invitations? Yeah, yeah, Ed. Consider yourself all comped for the the London one in early September. Labor Day weekend is traditionally when when it's held. But this was the first time we um, did it in Washington, D.C. at the Kennedy Center. And yes, I had long conversations with Bill Burns and with Henry Kissinger and got good advice from the, the two Davids. Rosa, your number was engaged. But uh, I thought since, uh, since David had been involved in the intelligence coverage recently and the other David worked for Kissinger, I uh, just got some tips as to what questions to ask them. But anyway. Worked, worked for Bill Burns, too. It worked for Bill, Bill Burns, called you to ask what answers to give. Um, no, no, no. I'm saying I also worked for oh, sorry. as well as Henry Kissinger. <laughs> yeah, no, I know you did. And those were very helpful tips. And, and Bill Burns, you know, I mean, I still have to pinch myself as a journalist to have a not just a, a good and I think thoroughly upstanding public servant as CIA director, which, as I think we've mentioned before, is not unrelated to the fact that he's a career diplomat, the first ever to head this near 80-year-old agency, but B, that he's being so candid and open in terms of pretty much every question you throw at him in the middle of this very kinetic proxy war situation in Ukraine. So what I, what I took from him, though, was a rather bleak message that this is going to be a long war of attrition, that Putin's not going, to, not going to want to leave the field, as it were, without being able to, in some plausible way, declare a victory. And since that isn't in, the, in his sights, that isn't a plausible outcome in, in the near future, that means a long warp and probably escalation. Um, Kissinger, as you know, is almost 99, and it did occur to me that there we were in the Kennedy Center, and Kennedy was the first president he formally advised. So that, uh, that, underlines, that underlines his age and venerability and took a, a somewhat different perspective, a critical one, I guess, of the Biden administration, choosing to rhetorically bracket China and Russia together in the democracy versus autocracy framing of foreign policy, driving enemies together. And I guess Burns, in a way, sort of capped that by saying, look, whatever's happening in Ukraine, whatever lethal threats Putin poses, the larger challenge remains China. Actually, I thought that, first of all, I thought Ed did a fabulous job in both interviews, but, and Kissinger's not easy. Burns is a little bit, little bit easier to, to, interview. 
But I think if you combine what you heard Director Burns say yesterday with what Avril Haines testified to this morning when she was in front of a, a Senate committee and, and other conversations that we've had with the administration, you get a picture of an administration that is now doing a significant pivot because they recognize that while they were absolutely right on the intelligence about when the attack would happen and that the Russians would attack, they also believed that Ukraine would fall in about three or four days. So they weren't really prepared for this long war of attrition that, that Bill was descri- describing and that Alvaro Haines described today, one in which the Russians recede to the southeast, but as Alvaro Haines, uh, the director of national intelligence, made the point today, probably only to bide their time, think about what they did wrong in Kiev and figure out a way to get back the entire country again. So I found that to be, be pretty striking. And that explains why we're looking at $33 billion. Probably it'll be 40 by the time it gets through Congress in aid. And that's only for the next five months. We keep saying, you know, that the aid is for period X and it ends up not being even for that. But um, yeah. Rosa, what do, you, what do you think of those comments, uh, both from Burns and uh, Avril Haines? Yeah, you know, it's... It's interesting. One of the things that struck me in the last week's news was the leaked information that American intelligence had helped the Ukrainians uh, both target the Russian uh, flagship that was sunk and target the various Russian generals who have been killed. I assumed, I, I mean, without anybody leaking that, I was sort of assuming that we helped. And when the leak came along, I was quite surprised because I assumed it had been a deliberate administration decision to leak that. And my reaction was, ooh, yikes, this seems escalatory. And then, of course, it turned out that Biden was apoplectic that someone had leaked that for the precisely that reason. I do think that the administration is just con- no surprise, right, continues to struggle to get that line right of sufficient assistance to the Ukrainians to keep Putin from having an easy victory, and maybe at this point from any victory at all, while at the same time not wanting either in, not wanting to do anything that actually does substantially escalate tensions between Putin and the US, Putin and the West, Putin and Europe. I think they're continuing to struggle with that line. I, it seems rather optimistic of, to, to think that the, the real problem is now China. I mean, I think China is clearly up very large real challenge, but I can't quite see the Ukraine-Russia situation occupying significantly less U.S. bandwidth uh, from an intelligence or foreign policy point of view for some time to come. I mean, it may very well be the case, as, as more and more commentators and experts are suggesting, that we're, we're settling into the, the potential long slog slash quagmire phase of the, of the war in which case there may not be as many day-to-day crises and there will be a little bit more breathing room for the U.S. But last week we had a conversation with Tom Nichols about what might happen on May 9th, Victory Day for Russia, and, and there were certainly noises being made that very bad things would happen, that some sort of significant Russian decision to escalate would be announced on that day. I think, I think I'm quite relieved that that was not the case. I'm curious to know whether the rest of you think the fact that 
Putin was pretty, I mean, David, you've written about this, but Putin was pretty quiet and low key, all things considering. And it's interesting to know whether you all think that that signifies his own acknowledgement that this is going to go on for a long time. Nobody's going to overreact and nuke anybody. If that's the right read, then then we can all start worrying about China again. Perhaps you have a response to that. I mean, one thing you know I've heard from senior administration officials is China really wants to focus on domestic issues for the bulk of this year as they are undergoing a kind of a revamping of the of the population of their government and and moving towards a party congress. So you know maybe that they don't particularly want to be involved. Also today there was uh, news that uh, President Macron spoke to President Xi, and they both expressed the desire that a ceasefire be reached as soon as possible. So that's a lot to respond to, Ed, but I just wanted to add that in. Macron's not just spoken to Xi and called for a ceasefire, which is fine. I mean, a ceasefire, of course, is usually a a pause for regrouping. So you want to know what the terms, what the point of the ceasefire is as well. But I have no objection to ceasefire. In fact, you know, we'd all love the war to end in Ukraine. But Macron's been making other signals. He's been pouring cold water on the idea that Ukraine could join the European Union, something that's popular across Europe, but which Macron says shouldn't be possible, that Ukraine should be in a sort of friends of the EU outer group that would include Britain and others. And, you know, I I hesitate to call Britain a, a close friend of the EU nowadays. Instead of joining NATO, this makes a lot of sense to a lot of people since Europe has an implicit sort of embryonic security, mutual security, not guarantee, but spirit in membership of the club. And so that would be almost the optimal kind of solution to this if in a final settlement, whenever that is between Zelensky and Putin, part of the deal is Ukraine doesn't join NATO. So I'm not sure what Macron is up to here other than trying to get attention and trying to sort of be a differential actor in this situation. But I think China has actually acted with pretty much conform with the rules. For for most of these votes at the UN, it's abstained, not voted with Russia. It's, It's clearly with Russia, not because it likes Russia, but because Russia doesn't like America. And so there's the enemy of my enemy principle. But I don't think um, the the Chinese are particularly impressed by by what Putin's doing. I think it's reckless. They see it as reckless. And it breaches the sovereign territorial, the sanctity of sovereign uh, sovereignty that that is at the core of Chinese um, foreign policy. So I don't really know what the fate after this war is of Russia-China relations. And I know it's not fashionable to quote Kissinger. And, you know, when my friends heard I was doing an onstage interview with Kissinger, I sort of got bombarded with ask him about Pinochet, ask him about Cambodia, ask him about Bangladesh, blood telegram, etc. And I resisted all of that. I wanted to hear what he had to say about today. And so I don't wish to offend them by quoting him approvingly and saying that having China and Russia pushed together is not post-Ukraine war, is not in our interests. We want to find points of difference between them. I thought that was really an interesting part of the interview because, of course, the purpose of the opening with China at the time was to try to drive 
exactly that wedge and not be in a position where they could cooperate together. And that's really a major goal of the Biden administration right now, which is at a minimum trying to get China to sit on the sidelines of the Ukraine war, not provide arms and not provide economic aid that would ease the sanctions load on on the Russians. We don't know how that's going to work out over the long term. But for now, for the first 10 weeks, from everything we can tell, it has worked so far, which in and of itself is truly fascinating. Um, I've done a lot of interviews with Secretary Kissinger before. I've gotten the same urgings that, that you got, Ed, and I've asked him about that era because you can't not if you've got a you know, longer and, time. And wait, let me guess, David. He said... I'm really sorry. I did terrible things and I apologize to everyone. I know there's nothing I can well, do for it. Henry Kissinger has made one <laughs> mistake in life that we should all remember, or at least all government officials should remember, which is he has lived so long as he is, as, as Ed says, about to turn 99, that he's outlived the declassification dates of his own documents. <laughs> Oh, my God. Which which means that you can run into the problem of having people actually see what you wrote at the time, which can sometimes be inconvenient if, like me, you can't remember what you wrote three weeks ago. What will Henry Kissinger be really remembered for? I think he'll be remembered for the opening to China, which, had we not done it, would have really changed the past 40, 40 or 50 years of history quite dramatically. He didn't open to China because he thought that they were going to become the world's largest, second largest economy. He didn't open to China because he thought they were going to become a major global player. He did the opening because he wanted to split China and Russia. I should note, he also didn't open to China because he thought they were going to become our best friends. It was the middle of the Cold War, and he was trying to figure out how you deal with two enemy rival countries uh, in a way that it plays to your interests. All this time, I thought it was about improving the quality of American food. It did. Except for the fact that he did a lot of the early negotiations in a Chinese restaurant that was on Connecticut Avenue that ended up closing and becoming a Walgreens. So yeah, what, bad, what did that do for our cuisine? A bad, a bad. That's, that's all about the triumph of capitalism, I guess. Yeah, this is creative destruction. This is dynamic. Bad, bad Chinese restaurant, but there's a good Mexican restaurant on that block. Anyway, Rosa, you talked about the victory parade that wasn't really a victory parade. One of the things that was striking about it was, quite apart from what Putin said, which was kind of all you know, repetition of slogans. And quite apart, what sort of didn't happen, he didn't escalate. There was a flyover that didn't happen. He did have to acknowledge troops were dying in Ukraine. The military display there was somewhat less because a lot of the the military equipment, the National Guard and so forth were in Ukraine. But it was also played in counterpoint to Zelensky, who gave a speech on a video while walking through to the deserted streets of Kiev and was a far cry stronger. David mentioned the Avril Hayden's comment and, you know, the idea that the Russians will pull back and then maybe go in. And one of you mentioned the idea of a war of attrition. But when I heard the word, term war of attrition, I thought, you know, who is being attrited here? 
Lloyd Austin used the term attrited a couple of weeks ago. And, you know, who is being attrited here? Because the Russians don't have the ability to manufacture a bunch of the weapons that have been destroyed. And what they've got uh, in reserve is is actually sort of older and, and less good. So a longer war may not be in their interest, whereas Ukraine's equipment is being replaced by NATO equipment. How do you react to to that, this kind of reframing of all of this? Yeah, uh, I mean, as I said, it's I'm not a military expert. I don't feel that I can independently evaluate whether the commentary that suggests that we're entering the you know, war of attrition, long slog phase is, is accurate. But it does seem certainly that, as, as you suggest, that if that's the case, Ukraine actually may hold the advantage in the long run precisely because Russia doesn't have a lot of pals. And the pals it has are not powerful military modern states, by and large. I can't see the Chinese create, I mean, I'm sure the Chinese would be delighted to sell things to the Russians, but I can't see the Chinese saying, we'll just give you lots of stuff. Whereas Ukraine is the beneficiary of all kinds of, of, of gifted equipment, et cetera, as well as loan. Now, it's amazing to me that we are reviving Lend-Lease. So the Ukrainians have a potentially unlimited supply of weapons, material, tanks, planes that will replenish. The Russians appeared already to have reporting suggest they've already used up most of their precision missiles, for instance, and now they're using up the, the dumb ones. Dumb ones are bad. They kill more civilians because they don't tend to land on their targets. But Russia, as far as I can tell from what I read, does not have the capacity to rapidly ramp up to produce more precision munitions. And it's not clear where they're going to get a lot from. What is harder for me to figure out, I was actually going to ask all of you this question. It's, it's clear that Russia has been losing lots of people in addition to losing lots of stuff. And it seems clear that it's going to be extremely difficult for them to replenish replenish in the form of combat ready units. You know, it's, it's easy enough to keep conscripting people, but it's extremely difficult to get new people to the places where you need them who have the capabilities that the Russians are going to need. On the Ukrainian side, I have much less of a sense of Ukrainian personnel losses. And I wondered if any of you have, I feel like we're seeing a lot of reporting on, Rush, on Ukrainian civilian casualties but not quite as much on Ukrainian military casualties. So I think it partly obviously depends on, we've seen already that the Ukrainians who are fighting to defend their, their country have a little bit more, I should say a lot more, vim and vigor than the Russian conscripts who are thinking, what the heck am I doing here? And how can I get out of here? But obviously there's not an, un, there's not an unlimited supply of humans there either. Rosa makes a really great point here, which is the Ukrainians, have, I'm sorry, Go right ahead, David. I was just going to say, I'd love to hear what you think was a great point in a minute, because we usually take a break here and say goodbye. Oh, to but don't cut out the part where David says that Rosa made a really great point. We would be actually that's a that's a great moment at which to break. <laughs> <laughs> for those of you who would like that to, came through clearly enough. <laughs> for those of you who'd like to hear Rosa's great point or to hear David <laughs> commend Rosa on the great point, you're going to have to become a member so you can listen to the members only part of this podcast, which follows this break. For those of you who are not members, you're out of luck. You did hear, however, Rosa's great point. And uh, that's that's bonus, a bonus benefit in itself. 
For those of you who are not members, would like to be members, go to the dsrnetwork.com and click on membership. And it costs about a cup of coffee a month to be a member. And our membership roles have swelled dramatically. I think they doubled in the first two months of this year. And uh, we're hoping that that happens again in the next two months of this year. So please join up. We've got a lot of great stuff coming. However, for those of you who are not yet members, bye-bye for now. And for members, stand by. Hi, I'm Grant Haver, and I want to introduce you to the newest podcast on the DSR Network, Next in Foreign Policy. Every other week, Zoe Weinberg and I talk with new and emerging foreign policy experts about the issues of today and tomorrow. We've covered everything from the war in Ukraine to the impact of pop culture on policy. So if you want to better understand the people and ideas that will be shaping the debate in Washington and around the world for years to come, check us out wherever you find your podcasts.